Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, your host, and I'm very happy to have you here. I'm in the middle of preparing for a four-day intensive this coming weekend, so I'm going to try to keep this intro short and sweet. Um, The episode you're about to listen to is a recent Dharma talk I gave, and the theme is on Vipassana meditation. It's part of a series of talks I've been giving this fall on Vipassana practice, which means to see clearly Vipassana is the practice of, as Joseph Goldstein said to me once, paying attention to what's occurring in the moment without grasping. And one of the attributes or characteristics of experience that is very much highlighted and emphasized in Vipassana meditation is the uh, universality of the characteristic of change, or what the Buddha referred to as anicca, or impermanence. So the meditator in practicing Vipassana starts to see with greater and greater detail the way in which all conditioned experiences, all sounds, sights, thoughts, smells, tastes, touches, I think that's all of them, all six, um, all of these are impermanent. And in different ways, and I would say even in idiosyncratic ways, when people encounter the truth of this impermanence, not just an idea of it, but as a direct, immediate knowledge within your gut or bones, at that level, uh, often there's some flavor of fear that comes up. In the Burmese model of practice that I, I did some time in, uh, they referred to this as, the, as literally knowledge of fear. So I'm just mentioning this because there's, there's phases of practice that aren't so easy, and encountering, as Bhikkhu Bodhi eloquently put it in one of his books, he says we start to see, or we really confront, the, the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. The insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. So, uh, as you'll hear in the talk, this, this uh, witnessing or, or realization of sort of radical impermanence, we could say, Um, is part of the practice within which we learn to recognize the dimension of peace present to this uncertainty or to this impermanence. And that's an emphasis that Ajahn Chah, the the great Thai forest teacher, really tried to um, impart. And that's a theme I'll be trying to explore in the talk today. And before I give you today's talk, I just want to give a short plug to the online practice community that Terry and I facilitate called the Riverbird Sangha. If you're interested in exploring the intersections and synergies between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, qigong, Taoism, and Buddhist approaches to meditation, if any or all of that sounds of interest to you, please consider practicing with us. You can join as a monthly member or you can do drop-ins each class. And there's information for you about that in the show notes, but the link to that information is joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. That's joshsummers.net forward slash S-A-N-G-H-A, sangha. Okay, and now without further ado, I bring you today's talk, Peace Within Uncertainty. So for this evening's talk, um, I just wanted to begin with a 
sort of a seasonal recognition or acknowledgement that it's the first of November today. We're moving into the fall. We're definitely in the fall season, um, moving towards winter. And uh, yesterday, at least where Terry and I live and many parts of the world that you might find yourself in, there was a celebration of Halloween. And um, I don't intend to give any deep reflection on the the origins of and the mythological origins of, of Halloween, but um, you know it's a it's a it's a it's a day in the year where the the, the macabre, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 scary, is celebrated in a way, and it just so happens that on the mo- on the morning of yesterday morning Sunday morning, um, I was sitting in front of the wood stove with a, a house guest that was visiting us for the weekend. And um, it was about 7.30 in the morning. We were having a cup of tea and talking. And um, while we were engaged with each other, talking about whatever we were talking about, um, I, I noticed in the out of my peripheral vision that the windows that face onto our small porch, um, in those windows, I saw a one of our white kind of I think it's plastic or rubbery, like um, Adirondack chairs, just a, a white chair was was moving seemingly by itself along the porch. And it went by once and I thought, that's probably Terry out there doing something. <clears throat> but then the second time it <laughs> went the other way and, and there was no Terry pushing it. Um, it occurred to me that something unusual might be underfoot, <laughs> something supernatural may be underfoot. And what some of you may remember, I, I haven't talked about this in a while, but the town that, that Terry and I live in um, is the hometown of Stephen King, Durham, Maine. And um, I feel like after having been here several months now, my my initial jumpiness around every little thing that seemed a little strange or, or eerie has calmed down. That, that anxiety is really settled. But when this white chair started moving itself <laughs> backwards and forwards on my porch, on our porch, I got a little bit uh, disconcerted. And I, of course, you know, initially I thought it's got to be the wind. It has to be the wind. I mean, it's it's windy out. So I, you know, I look a little bit further out the window and, and the trees and in, in the distance they weren't really blowing that much. And I looked at the other side of the house and the trees on that side weren't really blowing that much. So there wasn't, it's like, there isn't that much wind. Well, what's moving this thing? And of course it, it really, it was the wind as far as I know, but um, given how much phenomena like that can stir up the most um, kind of superstitious fears and the most pragmatically ra- rational person, <laughs> I thought, how am I going to turn this experience of this 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 chair being blown around on my porch and and, and being fearful that it's a sign that the, a demonic possession of our house is is taking over? Um, how can I turn this into a Dharma talk? <laughs> what's what's the um, what's the link between this experience and and the Dharma? And I have a few, so I have a few reflections about that for this night's, this evening's talk. And, you know, one way of looking at it is, what does this have to do with uh, specifically the, the style of meditation that Terry and I have been sharing this fall called Vipassana, 
which if you're just joining, Vipassana is a simple uh, style of Buddhist meditation which endeavors to develop a capacity to be in the moment or be in the present moment and within the present moment to observe real-time events as they occur. So sometimes it's just uh, reduced to uh, the capacity to see sounds as sounds, sensations as sensations, thoughts as thoughts, feelings as feelings, sights as sights. It's just that simple. to see things in real time as they occur. And if you hang around a Vipassana community or like a meditation center where they emphasize Vipassana, and it's spelled V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. Um, so it's, some, someone asked me how to spell it, and I know I can have a penchant to mumble, so I can something like Vipassana. It's Vipassana. <laughs> that's, the, that's the name of it. But if you hang around in, in Vipassana circles, um, you know, one of the stated objectives is, is that while engaged in this moment-to-moment process of seeing real-time events, uh, the meditator starts to see the one of the meta characteristics. So one of the broad characteristics or marks of uh, or marks of existence that all these experiences share. And the 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 first meta characteristic is often identified as impermanence, the truth of impermanence, the changingness of all events, all occurrences, all experience. Um, and and at least in the Buddhist world, that is that is held as a as a very profound insight. Um, but to maybe a mo- our modern ears, we can you know hear the emphasis of the importance of seeing the impermanence of things, or and, and to sort of take an intellectual stance and say, oh, that everything that is, everything that arises will cease, everything that's born will die, everything that comes into existence comes out of existence. Intellectually, cognitively, that's um, not going to win you many points in kind of the the, the, the tally of intellectual rigor or you know the intellectual impressiveness. You know, to say everything arises that ceases isn't very very deep. And yet, you know, in the heart of Buddhism, at least early Buddhism, this is a profound insight to be realized which means it's not something just to be intellectually grokked or intellectually understood. It's not something to sort of a, to agree with like a doctrine. Oh yeah, everything's impermanent. Therefore I'm cool. I get it. Now. I get the, I get the joke. Everything's impermanent, nothing to hold on to. It's all, it's all good. It's not that it's that it, it's really to uh, let your entire being like, the, like sometimes I try to sense your, your whole being really begins to align around the implications of that statement or the implications of that truth. And that's where the practice comes in to, to uh, both see the relentlessness of this truth. Or as um, I, I know I've quoted this man before, but um, my teach, one of my teachers, teachers, this teacher named Manindra would say, everything is just empty phenomena rolling on. When you start to see the the comprehensiveness of impermanence, whether it's a sight, a sound, a thought, a feeling, a memory, an image, all of these experiences reveal their changing nature with time. 
And, um, I, you know, I, on one level, and I want to share like sort of trend, uh, transparently from my own development, I think, or my own journey through this practice is that um, when I first heard this teaching, at first I felt like, oh, this is such, it's such a relief that somebody somewhere is saying this. What a relief. Sort of like if you've ever um, had a conflict with somebody or been in a dynamic with a group of people where there's some misunderstandings going on and things aren't getting clear clearly stated or named and then somebody's brave enough to finally name it and say you know what the issue here is this and it may not become as welcome news but there's there's kind of a, a a sober comfort in naming the truth of something oh thank thank that person i really appreciate the fact that that person said it like that because what I couldn't quite say, but it's landing. That's lands in the truth of my experience, and there's just a relief that now the truth is being named, like the the elephant in the living room is being um, recognized for the elephant that it is. And so, initially, you know, a, a, a teaching like this that everything's impermanent uh, can feel, could feel, kind of comforting or. Um, sobering in the sense that it's it's naming something that a lot of our society tends to deny whether it's denial of the, the changingness of the body as we age or the, the inevitability of death or um, just the the generalized you know cultural strategy for the good life that i know i signed on to and many of you probably found yourself in where the good life is, <clears throat> on some level, um, defined by what you can achieve, collect, amass, and do. It's all related to experience. Like the good life is defined by the kinds of optimal experiences you can gather for yourself, even if they're not material experiences. There's still a sense of pursuing sounds, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant touches, pleasant thoughts, as being in as as being kind of the the ultimate in a way. And when we start to, when, when somebody or a system or a meditation process names the, the elusiveness of those aims and they're elusive because they're changing. So in names that there can be, as I've been trying to describe a real sense of relief, like, Oh, there's somebody else gets it. Somebody else can see this too. I'm not the only one. And from from that from that recognition, that's what I was about to get to with my own sense of my my own development is that I, for a while, and for many years, hid out in a kind of a spiritual behind behind a spiritual shield of that statement. Oh, everything's impermanent. I know. I'm not. A, I'm not duped anymore by reality. Everything's impermanent. I can hide behind that, and I feel like I feel kind of safe and secure behind this intellectual position, this philosophical position. Um, of course, that was I, I could I could feel safe so long as I could maintain um, memory of that position, or I could could repeat it to myself. And in the times when when things changed that I didn't want to change. 
whether it was relationship, work, anything in the in the in the human realm, when things would change that I didn't want to change, there was a lot of resistance and struggle. And I kept thinking, hang on, what's wrong with me? I've been doing this Buddhist thing for a while now. I've seen, I've, I know everything changes. I've seen, I've seen my body sensations change. I've changed, seen the relentlessness of my thoughts changing. I've seen this matrix of change before. Why is this particular form of it tearing me up? And I think a clue came to me uh, many years back. I was listening to a talk with Ajahn Amaro, the uh, Thai, British Thai forest monastic, who's the head of a, a monastery in England now. And he had studied with Ajahn Chah, the, the great Thai teacher of the last century. And he said, so I'm taking his word, but he shared that Ajahn Chah didn't teach observing impermanence, which he sort of defined as the, the cognitive perception of change. He didn't, Ajahn Chah didn't emphasize that. He said, he didn't say, watch everything changing, notice the rising and passing away of things. What he actually emphasized was tuning into the feeling in the heart upon encountering the change. So how does it feel inside? What is the affective tone of observing changingness? Which gets me back to sitting on my armchair in front of the wood stove seeing that white chair passing by what was the affective feeling tone there or the, the affective feeling that came with that and there was fear and that's what reminded me of ajahn Chah's teaching he said rather than focusing on permanence focus on the feeling of uncertainty that it brings and it's the feeling of uncertainty that really i think on some level causes the mind or causes the heart to grasp at things, even though it sees those things changing. Like there's a feeling of this isn't secure here. What do I need to do to shore up a sense of security within this flux of change? And I think if you, if we pause and reflect for a moment, I mean, I'm not, again, claiming any deep insight by saying this, but I know for a fact, and I, I can say this with utter certainty, that we've all experienced tremendous amounts of uncertainty in the last year plus, year and a year and over year and a half, almost coming into two years. And how much these changing conditions rattle. Sometimes they rattle a little bit, sometimes they shake us to the, our core. We can feel tremendous despair, confusion dismay, depression, anxiety. <clears throat> and so, so far in our Vipassana practice, uh, the way I set up the instructions so far and the way Terry has shared the instructions so far, we've been emphasizing looking at our experience, orienting our mind in the present, or when we find ourselves uh, situated in the present, you know, we woke up from the wandering state. And we're awake now. So far, we've been emphasizing just taking a close look at the things you're aware of when you're awake. And we've just been kind of keeping the, the scope of experience to 
environmental sounds and physical sensations. There's more to it than that, but we're just keeping it simple at those levels for now, at those two domains. <clears throat> and to really add in the layer of wisdom, which is kind of the, the, the heart of this path, is that this isn't a path of experience, of, of, it's not a path of states in that we're not seeking after particular states of experience. That's sort of the more of the yogic path. But in the Buddhist sense of the path, we're looking at the nature of all experiences and developing a new understanding or a, a, a wisdom quality in relationship to where we're seen. And that the, the clearer we see, that confers a, a more sensitive and more refined lens of wisdom, you could say. Um, <clears throat> but in really watching what's going on, it probably doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you listen to sounds changing, you know, you may not feel shock waves of uncertainty ripple through you. Maybe just hearing, you know, whether it's birds chirping or building sounds or traffic sounds or roommate sounds. You know, those sounds don't necessarily bring strong senses of uncertainty or anxiety with them. And that's good. That's why we started with them. That's why we started the process, or I suggest we start the process with sounds, relatively neutral experiences that we can practice being comfortable with, within their, un, their, their impermanent, unpredictable, changing nature. So it's like the, this is the, the low-lying I don't know if it's necessarily low-lying fruit, but this is the, the like in terms of a graduated path, this is the phase of the path where the incline is relatively level. There's a little bit of an incline, but the pit, the steep on it is is mild. So we're just when the mind wakes up, we're listening to sounds and noticing the changing nature of those sounds. But that's the layer of the instruction today to notice the change. When we bring it closer to home. We take that awareness that's open to sound and then include within that field of sound the, the various experiences that go on within the, the, the flesh of our body, meaning the, the sensations and then the thoughts and feelings that the, that the mind produces. And we, are, we develop enough stability of presence to observe the changingness of body and mind then things can be, you know, it's like the the incline goes up a little bit more, or you could say it goes down into the rabbit hole a little bit more. <laughs> it goes it goes it goes up or down depending on how you're going to uh, imagine the path. But it this is where it starts to hold deeper implications for just who and what we are, and 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 how we 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 how this this entity of who and what we are seeks safety and security. In a, in a matrix of impermanence. <clears throat> and to help kind of illustrate this a little bit, I thought it, I thought it would be helpful to, to speak about it in terms of our will, our willpower. And I specifically am, am drawing on this because the Chinese medical model and the Taoist medical Taoist system that informed uh, the medical model has things to say about um, our relationship to changing 
experiences or our relationship to impermanence. So in Chinese medicine, every organ, as some of you might know, every, every organ um, has functions that relate to the maintenance of the physical nature of the body. There's functions that the organs have that relate to the energetic um, health of our body in terms of producing, storing, and circulating vital substances and vital energies like qi and blood. But for our for the for our intents and purposes here um, in Chinese medicine, the organs also uh, host or house a dimension of our psyche or a psychological aspect of our of our mind. And the kidneys, kidneys in Chinese medicine, store what's called the will. And the kidneys in Chinese medicine are the root of yin and yang in the body. And so in terms of our will, our willpower, there's a yang will and a yin will, or a yang side to the will and a yin side to the will. The yang will, I have a little quote here. The yang will um, is associated with the forceful assertions that shape the course of decades the big shifts, the decisive efforts, the fundamental commitments that allow a person to take responsibility for his or her life. This is the creation of the young will's volition. This is from a, a famous book called The Web That Has No Weaver, Weaver by Ted Kapchuk. So the young will is what I think most people would normally associate with willpower. It's the, the, kind of the, 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 the ability of the mind to, to chart a course, to plot steps out to get to the goal of that course and then to apply effort and energy to stay with it, to realize the, the, the objectives of the goal. So one way of simplifying, you could say, is the yang will strategizes by control. Control and, and manipulation and achievement are kind of the, 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 the specific um, tactics that the yang will employs for its or well-being and happiness. But Kapchuk, the author of this book, says the yin will is the other side of will. And the yin will is a deeper encounter with the inexorable and ultimate destiny that already exists hidden in the undifferentiated seed. It's rather poetic. It's the deeper encounter with the inexorable and the ultimate and the an ultimate destiny that already exists within the undifferentiated seed. <clears throat> the yin will is the recognition that the deepest force requires no effort. The yin will is elusive, almost intangible. It is noticed in stillness, and it has a quality of irreducible mystery. But here's here's the I think the the important line for our for our contemplative practice. Recognition of the yin will, recognizing this dimension of our mind, allows for the creation of the virtue of wisdom. This wisdom is not about knowing things. It's not about gathering facts and data and information. In fact, the yin will is more about being deeply connected to the unknown. Wisdom is a recognition of the fact that life is an intertwining of known and unknown. So life is an intertwining of known and unknown. And wisdom is also a recognition of a deep knowing that infuses life. A deep knowing that infuses life. So 
the yin will, in contrast to the yang will, where the yang will tries to control and achieve and gain, the yin will is much more about opening to, you could say, the truth of uncertainty, the truth of not knowing what's going to happen, the truth of being insecure. Um, and within that, like literally opening to that dimension of not knowing, being uncertain, actually within that, of not trying to impose anything on experience anymore, not trying to change experience, not trying to achieve something outside of what's here right now, like not trying to achieve something in another moment. But when we're when we develop the capacity, and this is the way the, the Chinese kind of refer to it in this model, when, when the yin will is nurtured, this receptivity within us to be available and awake to all that's occurring, we start to feel a, a deep knowing that infuses all of life. And, and so it's not an, a knowing of things, it's a, it's a presence that's alive and awake to the changingness of conditions is one way of putting it. And, and I would say, you know, I know this is sort of the Taoist view that without this capacity, without this capacity to be awake and receptive and in a sense, tranquil within the changingness of phenomena, the changingness of experience, the yang will, will try to make sure we're safe by going into double duty trying harder and harder and harder. So without, without this ability to temper the yang will with, with a, a quality of yin peacefulness and receptivity to change, without that, the yang will goes into overdrive, trying to, you know, making twice as many lists and trying to get as, twice as much done during the day and all, and all of that. <clears throat> so to, to bring these together, um, we, you know, I, I start the meditation journey with what we call, what I've been calling yin meditation because of its emphasis on this relaxed receptivity to experience. Now, from the, that relaxed receptivity, which will include phases of wandering and waking up, drifting off into thought and then coming to presence again. So within those, those basic cycles of the process, when we're present now, when the, when the mind wakes up on its own, now we can, um, rest within a sense of receptivity to the, the array of experiences that are occurring when we're awake and to really see what's occurring in real time and, and to let the uncertainty of our body, our mind, environment, to let the changingness and uncertain nature of our body, mind, environment um, affect us. To literally let it affect us and to feel what it's like to know that that thought that just went through your mind shot through like a shooting star, unbidden by you, known by you, but unbidden by you, arising and ceasing into the same pool of emptiness from which it arose. Same with the body, same with sounds. These things blink in and blink out, blink in, blink out on their own accord. In terms of tools, in terms of meditative tools, 
so far, we've used a tool, which I call a yang tool because you're doing something with it, there's something to do, but we've used a tool of labeling, recognizing what's occurring and giving it a name. And that, as I tried to say last week, is primarily a way to focus the attention on the occurrence, on the experience, whether it's a sound of like a footsteps or a car or a sensation in your body, to focus on the occurrence so that you can then see the changing nature of its presentation. And so when I, again, was when I was in this very strict Burmese model of practice, the, the Burmese teacher I had, he'd tell me, when you, when you talk to me about your meditation, you'd say, first, tell me what you noticed. Tell me how you labeled it. So I might say, I heard a bird chirp. I heard a bird chirp. I labeled it as hearing. And the third piece was, what happened to it while you observed it? Just describe in kind of almost scientific clarity, what, how did the sound behave when you observed it? And, and you know, there was no... Um, there's no correct answer on that. Whatever happened is what I needed to report. So if it got more intense, the sound got more intense, I'd just say that. If it got if it diminished and faded away, I'd say that. If it seemed to to, to oscillate back and forth between a, a chirp and a, and a silence, I would say that. So whatever the behavior of the experience was, I would just report upon that. And the idea is that in so so the 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 mind recognizes what's occurring first. Then there's maybe, this is helpful, a verbalization of the occurrence, the labeling, like hearing, hearing, sounds are being on, or, or sensation, like itching, itching. There's a labeling of it to uh, bring your awareness closer to the direct experience itself. Not to, not to label it and say, oh, that's impermanent, I know that, and then to hang back and sort of lean away from it but to actually <clears throat> use the labeling as a way to get closer to it, to, to get as intimate as you can with it, and then to feel and observe what occurs while you're aware of it. And to just to, to build on the instructions a little bit, while you're noticing one thing, so you're noticing a sound, it's very likely another experience will occur that has like greater valence or has more charge to it than the original sound you were paying attention to so you might hear feel a, a thud in your hip or an ache in your ankle or something so your attention gets will be drawn to a new object or a new experience and when that occurs you just let that new occurrence be the thing you pay attention to so the the, the, the kind of the guiding rule of thumb here is you're really just allowing your mind to be aware of whatever object or whatever experience is most vivid or most predominant in any given moment and there's 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 no hierarchy i say this very slowly there's no hierarchy of experiences it's not better to be with your breath than it is to be with your body that it is to be with the field of sound that it is to be aware of a nagging thought about uncle charlie versus uh concern about your dog or whatever it is like every occurrence is 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 held with equal value or, or significance. Now, and some of you have been talking about this, both in discussions and, and over email. Um, 
the labeling, I want to be very clear, may not be necessary. So, you know, going back to this work with this Burmese teacher I had, at some point I said, you know, I, I just can't label things fast enough to catch them all. There's too many things happening. I'm aware of the sound and I'm aware of this little twitch in my leg. And then I'm feeling an itch in the back of my ear. And then I'm remembering a, something from childhood. And then I'm having a fear about something in the future. And then I'm hearing another sound. There's so many, there's such rapidity of experiences going by that I can't, I couldn't verbalize and label them each. And his, his, his response was, um, you don't need to label them. You don't need to, to verbalize it. You just, it's the knowing is sufficient. The knowing is what we're, 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 we're emphasizing. So knowing the changing presentation of experience. <clears throat> so that's all to say that in the phases of your practice tonight, when you're awake, you might find it helpful to use the tool of labeling to just connect you with the immediacy of what's occurring. But you might find that labeling tool is unnecessary and unhelpful. And that's where my encouragement would be to play with just being silently aware of what's unfolding. And, and, and both are fine. And I just ask you to sort of improvise a little bit with both of those approaches. Using a tool, if it seems helpful, if it starts to feel like it's intrusive or getting in the way or just feeling clunky, putting it down and letting your mind glide silently with what is unfolding. So that comes back to the, 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 the metaphor of the, your mind being a stylus on a record player, just gliding along with experience silently, picking up what's there, but not altering it in any way. Um, <clears throat> of course, while, while doing this, if there's a range of experience that emerges that's intense or overwhelming, I just want to re reiterate one more time, the importance of playing your edge. So while being present to the changingness of whatever occurrences are going on, um, if things get too intense, you always have permission to come back to your perch, such as your hands on your lap or your breath or your body sitting or just sounds themselves. And you can invent your own perches too, but those are some basic suggestions for perches. But the big the thing that I want to close with is sort of a reflection that what I'm describing on some level can sound simple, can sound basic, can sound not so spiritual. But it's a the guidelines here are a simple suggestion that when engaged with, bring everybody into a more intimate contact with the truth of change in their body and their mind and their environment and the in the world really. And so we call this a practice, this is a meditation practice. And what I would say is we're practicing peace with uncertainty. And we don't have to conjure up economic catastrophes or climate catastrophes or uh, professional catastrophes, interpersonal catastrophes. We don't have to conjure these things up for practice to be effective. We're training ourselves with the immediate truth of change already on the cushion. And rather than trying to 
as I was describing, use the practice as kind of a defensive shield where we feel safe behind this fortress of, I can, I'm going to meditate, nothing's going to bother me, and I'm just aware of impermanence. If we, if we open up the arms and put the shield aside and let that immediate flux of impermanence impinge on our hearts, at some point, it may not happen in, in any particular order or in, a, you know, in any particular sitting, but at some point, this really starts to, it's like a very simple seed that, that, that gets dropped in and starts to grow with this insight that it's not just an idea that we're impermanent, we, or that we're experiencing a flow of, 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 of experience or a river of life. It's that we are that river. We are not separate from that river. Or as they say in Zen, you know, there's a phrase that like they say, I think the, the Zen teacher sticks a stick into the river and says, this is what everyone thinks they are. There's this like thing that is in the, in the flow of the river somehow separate from but you're not a stick in the river. You are the very river itself in terms of changing flowing experience. <clears throat> so a lot of people feel uncomfortable and we'll, I'm going to come back to this and in, in next week, likely I'll get into mindfulness of thinking, Vipassana with thoughts. But a lot of times people are troubled by the capricious, unpredictable, changing nature of their minds. It, it doesn't jibe well with a kind of a, a, a buttoned up professionalized adult version of ourselves. We take ourselves to be like we're in control of everything. Um, but that's, that's a hugely important liberative insight when it's really allowed to affect the heart. When we start to see that, oh, this 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 whole illusion of what I take myself to be is this cascading process. And again, to the mind, this sounds like dire news. <laughs> to the young will that like that seeks control, that seeks a strategy for happiness through control, this this relentlessness of change feels like, you know, it feels probably like a Sisyphean um, bad joke that you're just pushing the rock up the hill only to watch it roll down and then push it up again. But to the yin will, and this is what um, you know, I see us cultivating this in, in both the yoga practices that Terry and I teach um, energetically, specifically with the yin yoga, uh, and now contemplatively with the meditation, we're, we're really nurturing this, this dimension of our, of our yin will to be at peace with uncertainty to 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 become so intimately in tune with the fact of uncertainty that this this dimension of of of, of peacefulness within it becomes recognized but that, that and that's kind of the the, the paradox that it's, it, that dimension of peace isn't recognized so long as the yang will thinks it can still strategize its way out so the instructions again are to do less and less over time to trend towards a, a sense of pure being and just allowing or letting be and then in in releasing the demand on sounds 
sensations, thoughts. As I was trying to say last week, an uh, insight and recognition of a different dimension starts to open up when the, when the, the river of flow is allowed to flow. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk. I hope it is stimulating and supportive to you in your practice. And once again, if you'd like to practice live or over recording with me and Terry, focusing on meditation, yin yoga, qigong, Chinese medicine, Taoist and Buddhist meditation, kind of synergistically combined, uh, head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. You can look into either joining the, river, the Riverbird Sangha or you could participate as a drop-in uh, for any one of our weekly classes. And we look forward to practicing with you. And until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.